In the early hours of the morning on November 16, 1989, 300 Salvadoran soldiers circled the campus of the Society of Jesus' Central American University in El Salvador. A smaller dispatch proceeded to the Jesuit residence, where they murdered six Catholic priests execution-style on their front lawn and molested and shot the Jesuit's housekeeper, Elba, and her daughter, Selena. The horrific event raises a crucial question. Why did the Salvadoran military assassinate these religious leaders and their collaborators? A discussion of that question and more on this special episode commemorating the 32nd anniversary of the assassination of the eight martyrs of the Central American University. This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome back, folks. Today's the vigil of the Church and the Society of Jesus's annual commemoration of the Uca Martyrs. So, not only will we continue our examination of Juan Luis Segundo's essay on Revelation, Faith and the Signs of the Times, but I'll also share an interpretation of Eucharia's philosophy, politics, and actions that led to his assassination. And much of the information I'll be presenting here is published in my November 16, 2021 Jesuit Post article, Why Did They Shoot Ignacio Eucaria? Please check that out if you're interested. But before diving in, a quote by way of preface. Reflecting on Eucaria, his friend and Jesuit brother John Sabrino has said, quote, His sole existential dogma, so to speak, was the reality of the crucified people and the requirement to take them down from the cross, end quote. As we listen to Segundo's thoughts on Revelation, Faith, and the Signs of the Times and hear more of Eucaria's story, let's consider that, as Sabrino says, Eucaria saw the signs of the times as the reality of the crucified people. He put his faith in the process of liberation, and he saw this mission as God's revelation of the purpose of his life and, indeed, the life of all Christians. It's often assumed that revelation consists of pre-made, universally valid answers. Revelation is absolute truth because its source is God. But a closer look shows us that that's not the case, neither within the Bible itself nor according to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. First, let's consider the Bible. Much of the Old Testament either negates or is agnostic about the reality of the afterlife. We see this problem in the case of Job, which addresses the theological crisis of the suffering righteous person. If a person is good, then God should reward them, we think. But that's not what happens to Job, at least not at first. Though he is righteous, Everything he has is destroyed, yet Job perseveres, and in the end, in this life, not in the afterlife, God does reward Job for his faithfulness. Quote, the Lord restored the prosperity of Job. The Lord even gave Job twice as much as he had before, end quote. 
Thus, the crisis of the suffering righteous person appears to be answered, you may be righteous and suffering now, but if you persevere in your faith and love, then things will eventually turn around before you die. But it's not a particularly satisfying answer, since we do know that there are suffering righteous people who do in fact die before fortune changes in their favor. So a fuller answer would later be given in the Christian scriptures. The faithful are repaid for their goodness in the afterlife. And Jesus says, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And quote, John 11:25. Then we have Jesus in Matthew 25, in which, quote, the righteous go to eternal life. End quote. And the wicked, quote, go off to eternal punishment, end quote. There is divine justice, but it happens as it did for Jesus in the resurrection of the dead. We can compare the different responses that the biblical authors give to the issue of the suffering righteous person in the examples of Job and Jesus. Job receives his justice before dying. Jesus receives his justice after dying. We may, like Job, receive the reward of our faithfulness here and now, but if not, we can be confident as Christians that, like Jesus, we will be raised from the dead and granted eternal life in the joy of God. The New Testament presents a development in doctrine compared to the Old Testament book of Job. Nevertheless, we have to ask, why didn't God just give us the full answer in the first place? Dei Verbum, Vatican II's Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, paragraph 15, claims that although the Hebrew scriptures, quote, contain certain imperfect and transitory things, they nevertheless demonstrate the true divine pedagogy, end quote. This quote from Vatican II implies a seeming relativizing of the truth, and that's exactly what it might be. Segundo zeroes in on what Vatican II calls the true divine pedagogy, writing, quote, God seems unconcerned, not that the divine revelation be true in itself, be eternal truth, unchangeable truth, but that it become true in the humanization of the human being. In other words, God speaks only to those who seek and gives them no recipes, but rather guides them in their searching, end quote. Viewed this way, revelation is a process of learning to learn, more than a deposit of information. Returning to the metaphor of the professor that we employed last episode, a good professor, as Paulo Freire notes in The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, does not deposit information into the mind of a student as a business owner deposits a check into a bank or as a server fills a glass with water. Rather, a good professor, together with the students, reflects on problems facing the community at hand and develops a plan of learning that yields knowledge helpful in overcoming the concrete problems that the community is facing. So, too, with God. God's revelation is not an open sesame or a deposit slip, but ultimately an alliance a self-gift, a divine pedagogy of collaboration for the sake of the progressive liberation of humanity from all barriers that inhibit humanity's possibilities. Once again, revelation occurs for the sake of action in history. We can remember the St. Augustine quote from last episode, which paraphrased is, If you are not making me better than I am, then why are you speaking to me, God? 
With this in mind, Segundo suggests that God did not provide information about the afterlife until the New Testament because, quote, premature information as to the reality of the afterlife would have plunged Israel into a misguided search for Yahweh outside of history, end quote. I think he's correct. Absolutizing the afterlife often wrongfully leads believers to purge the scriptures of the scripture's gritty material substance. When everything is spiritualized, we end up forgetting our incarnate being, a being that was very good in the beginning, and a being that Jesus further sanctifies by taking a body himself. We should recall that the afterlife is material in Christianity. Our heaven is not disembodied, but embodied, as Jesus shows us in his own resurrected body at the end of each of the Gospels. Now, it's often thought that Revelation ends with the coming of Jesus, and in a sense, that's true. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. But in another sense, Revelation continues in the life of the church due to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples before his passion, quote, If I do not go away, the paraclete will not come to you. I should be able to tell you many other things as well, but you cannot manage them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to the whole truth. End quote. From Jesus' words, we can infer that through the Holy Spirit, God will continue to be present to God's people and will continue to assist humanity in its pursuit of freedom and justice. Even the disciples who had journeyed with Jesus for years were not able to manage the fullness of the truth. Truth, Jesus suggests, is more of a process of maturation than an informational session. And just as students do not forever remain in the physical presence of their teacher, but eventually move on, having absorbed the wisdom they've developed through their relationship with their teacher, the disciples move on without the physical presence of Christ as they had experienced it before. The physical teacher, Jesus, is replaced by a spiritual teacher, the Holy Spirit. With that spirit who moved over the waters in the act of creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, with that spirit present in the disciples, with that spirit who also dwells in us today, humanity becomes co-creator with God in that spirit of the new heavens and the new earth. The children of God mature towards the full stature of Christ, the creator God. Note how Segundo's perspective of maturation and co-work with God finds justification in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Quote, and so, sisters and brothers, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. End quote. 
God is building up humanity with the collaboration of humanity. And this building up is a process over time and space, like the construction of a building not all is accomplished in one day. The union of heaven and earth happens by labor. Yet labor differs according to the circumstances. Building a house is not building a bridge, and still less planting seeds for a harvest or teaching a class of high school students. So the Spirit reveals to humanity in a relative way that depends on our context. The Spirit tells us what Jesus would have told us in the face of today's problems. And the other day, I was at Mass with a Jesuit priest at Bellarmine Chapel here on the campus of Xavier, and he asked this question. Jesus, in the Gospels, was speaking from a rowboat to his disciples a little bit off the shore. And the priest asked the question, what would Jesus say to us if Jesus were in one of those little boats sitting on the banks of the Ohio River? What would he say to us here? And the priest said that he thought that Jesus would say to us, look around at creation, look around at what humanity is doing to creation, destroying creation by pollution. The climate is changing this place that I have given you as your home. You are destroying the house that you have been given. And hearing that, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I understood that Jesus was speaking to me through the Holy Spirit, through that priest in that moment, speaking to the church. So the Spirit is a living reality in the life of the church, leading us to the fullness of the truth, to an ever-closening relationship with the fullness of the truth. Not everything was contained explicitly in the Gospels that we read in our Bibles. There is a living relationship we have with God today. God is alive. Segundo summarizes his insights to close out his section on faith. Quote, Through a process of remembering and readopting, in a vital fashion, Fashion peculiar to its own identity, the past experiences of another process in which the search solutions and challenges of history converge. Each generation is thrust toward a more perfect maturity and toward a new, deeper, and richer truth. End quote. And Segundo is taking a cue from Hegel here, who in his lectures on the history of philosophy, quote, tried to exhibit the series of spiritual configurations, necessary procession, one out of another, so that each philosophy necessarily presupposes the one preceding it. Our standpoint is the cognition of spirit, the knowledge of the idea as spirit, as absolute spirit, which as absolute opposes itself to another spirit, the finite spirit, to recognize that absolute spirit can be for it is this finite spirit principle and vocation, end quote. We see here in this passage from Hegel that history is the unfolding of the spirit over time. And humanity's vocation is to progressively recognize, and we can add, act in accordance with the fact that this spirit is for humanity. Jesus Christ has come not to be served, but to serve. The absolute spirit is relativized in its human foreness. And finite spirit, humanity in turn, is absolutized in the freedom that comes from being adopted by the absolute spirit as children.
Before transitioning with Segundo from faith to the signs of the times, let's return to the question posed at the start of the episode. Why were Ignacio Eucaria and his companions shot on November 16th? The short answer is that the military had identified these Jesuit priests, especially Eucaria, the president of the Central American University, as, quote, the ringleaders of the subversive movements, end quote, and, quote, the real brains, end quote, behind the left Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, FMLN, which was opposing the reigning right-wing nationalist Republican alliance, ARENA, during the Salvadoran Civil War from 1979 to 1992. Essentially, the military had labeled the Jesuits of the UCA as communists to justify their extermination. But I would like to provide a longer answer to this question by addressing a taboo issue in many contemporary discussions of the Jesuit martyrs of the UCA was, as these right-wing folks were claiming, was Ignacio Eucaria a communist? And if not, was Eucaria, as the military claimed, an ideologue of subversion? To this first question, the answer is no, but with an important asterisk. Eucaria was not a communist. Rather, he was a critic of communism on the basis of the problems of its historical practice. In his influential essay in the Tradition of Liberation Theology, Utopia and Prophecy in Latin America, which we've covered in this podcast, the martyr notes that, quote, larger socialist nations, end quote, likely thinking of the Soviet Union and China, have had to adopt, quote, procedures more proper to the opposing capitalist system, end quote. And he claims that this fact exposes, quote, certain limitations that well deserve to be considered, end quote. When actually existing socialist countries, Eucaria claims, take two steps forward towards communism only to take one step back towards capitalism, they demonstrate communism's feasibility problem. Further, Eucaria observes that, quote, the Cuban model has intrinsic difficulties that can be overcome only with massive external support, end quote, a truth that bears out in the significant challenges that Cuba has faced since the downfall of the Soviet Union. Eucaria summarizes, quote, there are serious problems in the realization of the socialist model as the most effective instrument to historicize Christian utopia, end quote. And the Jesuit was not only concerned about communism's inability to sustain itself in history. He also problematized communism's material reductionism and exaggerated consequentialism. Eucaria held that Christian utopia, a project transcending any dogmatic Marxist model, was the ultimate goal of humanity and that Christianity could help correct Marxism's unhelpful tendency towards reductionisms and effectivisms. Like his fellow liberation theologians, Eucaria regularly insisted that the liberationist theory of just social change was at once historical and open to grace, to the beyond, to God. The communist theory of just social change qua materialism and atheism was not, these absolutes being significant limitations to communism's praxis and compatibility with Christianity. So we can see that the UCA president's writings exhibit a critical distance from communism, especially in its actually existing forms, China, the Soviet Union, Cuba. And as such, the military was wrong to draw a solid line from Engels to Eucaria. But was there a dotted line connecting them? And even if Eucaria was skeptical of Marxism, didn't he use 
some key facets of Marxist praxis to subvert capitalism and its military guarantor. We'll address these intersections after picking back up on Segundo's analysis of the signs of the times. It's possible that you've thought to yourself, what I'm experiencing in prayer, is it really God or is it just me? Likewise, with respect to our life experiences, which ones are of God and which ones are of us humans? Where is God at work? Where is it just us? This problem plays out at the individual level, but it plays out at the ecclesial and societal levels too. Consider the selection of the books of the New Testament. How did the church know that certain writings were inspired by God in a special canonical way and that others were not? According to authoritative church documents, the sacred canonical books are so because they are inspired by God as author. And Secundo exposes the tautological redundant nature of this kind of statement from church tradition. An event, document, or person is sacred because it's inspired by God? That's clear, <laughs> but it doesn't really add anything to our understanding. We are left asking how, but how did they make the decision? The Bible did not just fall from the sky. Some suggest that the books of the New Testament, for example, were chosen by the church because of their apostolic origin. Their authors were Jesus's apostles, or at least had a connection with the apostles, and this eyewitness Genesis contributes to their authenticity. Consider the beginning of Luke's gospel, quote, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. End quote. We can also look at the beginning of the first letter of John. Quote, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." End quote. These examples point to Christianity's material historicity. The New Testament authors mostly write as if documenting historical events, what they have seen, what they have heard with eyewitnesses, not spinning epic myths. Nevertheless, Christians have to wrestle with the historical critical method, in which the consensus is that not all the authors of the New Testament are who they say they are. The author of Hebrews may claim to be Paul or write in the style of Paul, but most scholars agree that the author is not likely Paul. And then there's the question of time. Some writings like 2 Peter, John's letters, the book of Revelation, were likely written at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century, about 70 years after Christ's death. Given the scholarship, it is difficult to affirm that the church's selection of books follows an entirely logical, historically accurate procedure. 
So, Secundo offers a different analysis. God has given over to humanity the responsibility to discern what God's revelation is. And we shouldn't be too shocked by that assertion. Consider the New Testament passages in which Jesus gives authority to the apostles. Quote, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. End quote. From Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. Jesus suggests that human beings have authority, even over what might traditionally be seen as God's purview. If the apostles make a decision on earth, then that decision holds in heaven. God hands over power to humans, even divine power. But this power is not only given to the Jewish people and to Christians. Paul says, quote, When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. End quote. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Human beings have the ability to discern the things of God on our own. But how do we do it? We participate in history. And when we see God's hand in the history that we are making, we write it down so that we do not forget it, so that its sense can be passed on. And in the case of the New Testament, when the community decided that a writing had meaningful, enduring value, it became part of the canon. Interpreted this way, it doesn't matter so much whether a text has a certain person as its author or whether it is historically accurate in every way. What matters is that something happened that brought a real benefit to humanity, that humans saw God's hand in what happened, that the story was written down, whether as an allegory or a documentary artifact, and that a community considered that story so important that it conferred canonical status upon it. They said, this is a story that must be told for generation upon generation. Like a typical liberation theologian, Segundo cites an interpretation of the Exodus event to illustrate his point. In The Revelation of God and the Realization of Humanity, Torres Queruga writes, quote, From his religious experience, Moses discovered the living presence of God in the longing of the Jews to be delivered from their oppression. The experience of contrast between the actual situation of his people and what he felt to be the salvific will of God, who seeks the human being's liberation, gave him the intuition that the Lord was present in that longing and supported the people. As he gradually succeeded in instilling this certitude of his and others, helping them as well to discover this presence, he awakened history, promoted the religious sense, and ultimately created Yahwism. End quote. Segundo talks about seven aspects of this very rich quote. I'll discuss the first three. First, there's the action of the author, whose experience of contrast presupposes an anthropological faith. What's meant here is that there is a situation that's understood as the status quo. In the case of Moses, it's the condition of the Hebrew people as slaves of the Egyptians. It might be interpreted as natural. Some humans have a slave nature, others have a master nature. That's what Aristotle taught. Or it might be interpreted as a product of history that's now unchangeable. 
the Hebrew people may not naturally be slaves, but the Egyptians enslaved them. And now, that's difficult to change. If they try to rebel, they will be killed. But Moses held a contrasting view. Though the present situation is what the present situation is, that's not what it should be and not what it has to be. In fact, maybe God doesn't want this oppression. Maybe God wants freedom. Maybe God wants a new arrangement of human economic production which is not based on slavery. This contrast is at the basis of revelation. As we discussed last episode, revelation is communication, and communication implies making a difference. If nothing changes, then no communication has occurred. Second, there is the author's faith. Segundo writes that the prophet, quote, should bet on what God should want, and whoever follows him should believe the same thing, end quote. Moses is convinced that God wants him to lead a revolution of liberation against the Egyptians. He met God in this desire. Moses finds God in the burning bush precisely after he's murdered an Egyptian taskmaster. He cannot escape from his calling to challenge the system. Confirmed in his faith in his bet on liberation, he begins to organize his community around this faith. First, Moses partners with Aaron. Then, Aaron and Moses assemble the Hebrew elders and convince them of the liberatory project. Third, there's the risk of bringing a new meaning to human existence in history. The spirit-led prophet ushers in an existential revolution in human self-understanding. In the case of Moses, there is a radical break from the master-slave relationship between nations. There is a seed of freedom planted in the Exodus event that's so powerful, that so altered human social psychology, that oppressed peoples continue to draw spiritual inspiration from it. Martin Luther King Jr. saw himself as a Moses figure. I have been to the mountaintop. Corresponding with this new comprehension of humanity is a new comprehension of God. God hears the cry of the poor, that famous line. God takes sides in history. God is a liberator. So it appears Segundo is correct when he says that revelation is always simultaneously a change in human self-understanding and a change in human understanding of God. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Prophets stake their lives on their new understanding. They bet on hope. And when they are successful, we sanctify the message they revealed. And when I say successful, I do not necessarily mean immediately successful, but successful in that they successfully convinced a community that their vision was worth living and dying for. So Moses did not make it to the promised land, but the spirit of his movement did propel his people to the promised land. And such is the case for many prophets of liberation theology in Latin America. They have died or they were killed, but because communities continue to find meaning in their message, we are here today speaking about liberation theology. And liberation theology is inspiring continually our concrete work for justice. Finishing his essay, Segundo encourages us to resist a rigid approach to revelation that would deafen the spirit of the gospel by relegating revelation to the letters on the pages of our Bibles. As St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.6, Christians are, quote, ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life, end quote. <coughs> 
The life-giving spirit is creative, there at the beginning of time, hovering over the waters, breathing life into a chaotic universe. The same spirit descending on us in our baptism by water and fire lives in us, and when we find ourselves confronted by a situation of death, can inspire us to breathe new life into the world, recreating it according to the pattern of love. Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Lord, communicate with us anew. We want to be changed. We read in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 14, quote, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you on your own soil, end quote. And let's ponder that quote as we consider this next part on Aechoria. Aechoria was a large supporter, promoter of agrarian reform, the sense that people should be placed on their own soil, that they should own the land that they work, that wealthy landowners in the countryside who may have large swaths of land that buy up in moments of difficulty the land of the peasant and then rent out that same property to the peasant, giving to the peasant with one hand the money from their labor and with the other hand taking away that money as rent, that it was a certain spirit of prophecy in Ignacio Aecaria that led him to say with Ezekiel that the spirit was within, that the spirit will lead to life, that the spirit will inspire people to reclaim the land that is theirs. there is a dotted line connecting Marx's political economy to Aecoria's. Though not a communist, the Jesuit philosopher was a subversive. He minced no words in his critique of capitalism and its imperialist developments, and he acknowledged that Marxism was a useful tool to diagnose and overcome the ills of the free market economy. For example, in the same essay in which he identifies the problems with socialism mentioned above, he offers a ringing endorsement of Marxism's utility. Quote, Marxism, insofar as it is the great contradiction of the capitalist arrangement, insofar as it profoundly attacks the spirit of capitalism and analyzes the mechanisms that sustain it, and insofar as it utopianly proclaims the liberation of human beings through the liberation of the poor, plays a long-reaching prophetic and utopian role in Latin America, and offers a scientific method for unraveling the profound dynamisms of the capitalist system." End quote. This view is subversive indeed. Historically and concretely, unraveling capitalism meant in that time unraveling arena and its antecedents. And unraveling arena meant sharing a goal with the FMLN. Aya openly and emphatically emphasized this subversive dimension of the Christian faith. He claimed that Latin America is searching for, quote, revolutionary change rather than reformist change, end quote, and that Christianity exhibits a, quote, subversive dynamism, end quote, which, though running the risk of Marxist co-option, can propel revolution against, quote, the demands of capital, end quote. The question Aya thought is not, quote, if revolution is needed or not, but what revolution is needed and how to bring it about, end quote. Aya was indeed an anti-capitalist revolutionary intellectual. Though he did not 
identify as a Marxist, he did contend that under present circumstances in Latin America, quote, the socialist ideal appears more connatural to the profound inspiration of the Christian message than the capitalist ideal, although neither of them is identified with the Christian utopian ideal, end quote. He consistently refused to endorse communism wholesale, but he consistently expressed his preference for communism over capitalism, given the, quote, extreme poverty and oppression, end quote, that El Salvador and countries in similar environments have faced. Philosophy and theology were Aikaria's disciplines. He loved them, and he was very good at them. He approached them with unparalleled intellectual rigor. Nevertheless, Aikaria did not refrain from addressing the concrete economic and political questions of his day. He did not stay at the level of abstraction. He weighed in on specific matters of state. He took stands on policy, something that many university presidents then and today would consider inappropriate or polarizing. Neutrality was not his guiding light. He advocated in his theoretical essays for the historicity of Christian salvation and the integral political aspect of salvation. And these essays were not merely words on a page. He lived them. His insistence on denouncing specific injustices and announcing specific visions of justice upset the authorities that were to orchestrate his death. The Jesuit knew that his way of proceeding would put a target on his head in the same way that Jesus knew that his preaching about blessings to the poor and woe to the rich would lead to his crucifixion. Many years before his assassination, Aikaria would preach the following words to his fellow Jesuits on a retreat. Quote, we are in the same situation as Christ was, and what is it that they will say to us priests or Jesuits when we dedicate ourselves to this task? First of all, they will say, these priests are communists or Marxists. End quote. And that's precisely what happened shortly after the 1989 murders. Quote, a military sound truck from the 1st Infantry Brigade circulated in the neighborhood of the bishop's headquarters, announcing triumphantly, A. Correa and Martin Baró have fallen. We are going to continue killing communists. End quote. Prophetic imitation of Christ comes at the cost of defamation and death. A clear example of Aikaria's repeated denunciations of capitalism's specific discontents occurred as early as 1975 and 76, when the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly created the Progressive Salvadoran Institute for Agrarian Transformation, which in turn announced its first project involving the redistribution of land from wealthy owners to peasant associations. The UCA publicly supported this plan. However, shortly after the Institute's creation and the promulgation of its agenda, capitalist interest groups like the National Private Business Association lobbied successfully to limit the Institute's mandate and consequently its redistribution program. Just as the UCA had advocated for the original program, the UCA denounced the moderating revisionist program. In a significant editorial called A Sus Ordenes Mi Capital, At Your Orders, My Capital, a play on words highlighting the connection among the political apparatus, the military apparatus, and the capitalist mode of production, A. Korea called the offensive against the original plan a clear instance of class struggle. In fact, the term class struggle appears in bold letters three times in three successive paragraphs in his article. The Jesuit left no room for equivocation. Agrarian reform was a matter of class struggle, and the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, in his words, was winning. Aikaria anticipated in the article the accusations of Marxism-Leninism that his detractors would no doubt hurl at him upon its publication. Quote, class struggle 
is not an exclusive, artificial, and willfully promoted instrument of Marxism-Leninism. The existence of classes is an objective fact, as is class struggle, end quote. This defense exemplifies A. Korea's praxic line. He avoided restrictive identifications with prescribed tendencies, but he acknowledged that the vocabulary of his present argument coincided with that of Marxist analysis. The coincidence is not a matter of affiliation with Marxism, but a result of two observers of reality, Marx and A. Korea himself, arriving at similar descriptions of that reality due to an objective state of affairs to which the debate on agrarian reform points. The editorial confirms an interpretation of A. Korea's life and death worthy of contemplation on the 32nd anniversary of his death. Though the martyr was not a communist as many of his assassins claimed, he did share some critical interpretations of social reality with communists. On the other hand, though many moderate commentators on A. Korea's thought wished to purge him of his revolutionary tendencies, he was a subversive intellectual who sought to unravel the dominant capitalist system that had created and reproduced harsh poverty in El Salvador. The oppression that Korea addressed in his writings and actions remain. In some ways, this oppression has only intensified as economic inequities within and between nations continue to grow. These realities, alongside the prophetic life of Korea, bring up a challenging question for Christians who seek to untie the chains of the global capitalist system that it has manufactured. Will we do justice to the memory of the Uka martyrs? Will we expose the orders that capital continues to give to politicians and military personnel? Will we work to subvert unjust systems, even if it means putting our reputations, careers, and lives at risk? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Next time, we'll look into Carlos Bravo's Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the Liberator, in which he claims that Christian faith makes reference to three histories, our present reality, the founding reality of Jesus, and the life of the church, which historically mediates the two. A liberating Christianity has its roots in the historical Jesus. So it's time for us to turn squarely to Jesus, to grasp the context of the human and divine person whose central message, the reign of God, was made known in his very biography. For now, let's end with a prayer adapted from a prayer by Rebecca Shabbat of Creighton University. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and loving Creator, as we conclude listening to this podcast to join our brothers and sisters around the world in living prophetic lives, we remember those who have laid down their lives for us. We pray that you will strengthen and bless us through the lives of the martyrs that we too might be willing to serve selflessly and not count the cost. We pray that you will be with the people of El Salvador as they celebrate the lives of their martyrs. Help us all to recognize the saints that walk among us. May we be a part of building your reign on earth. With Ignacio A. Correa and all the martyrs known and unknown, we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.